Hello, and welcome to the last episode of season one of the Saracast Conversations in Social Emotional Learning. I cannot believe we are almost halfway through the school year and that we're at the very end of our first season of our very first podcast. When the pandemic hit, our routines, our homes, our sense of normalcy was completely turned upside down. And these conversations with friends and mentors, researchers and scientists in the field of social emotional learning suddenly seemed critical to share with educators across the country who were scrambling for solutions in social emotional learning and figuring out how to make remote learning work. We knew that school leaders were looking for ways to build adult capacity for social emotional learning. So with limited technical knowledge, a remote team, a USB microphone, which we've now learned is not ideal for sound, we started the Saracast. I've spoken with leading researchers and scientists who have been driving this work for decades, as well as educators who bring it to life in the classroom or remotely every single day. As I reflect on this season and the conversations we've had, I cannot believe how much has changed in the field of social emotional learning and for education at large. The end of the year and the halfway point in the school year is a great opportunity for reflection. So I've invited school leaders from the Move This World community for a roundtable discussion to share their experiences and their perspectives from the first half of the school year. I'm excited to bring in some inspiring school leaders who I cannot wait for you to hear from. Kevin Bowles, Dr. Melinda Johnson, and Jessica Javinsky. I am excited to share a conversation with three really inspiring school leaders today. One who is physically with me in our studio in Brooklyn, Kevin Bowles, who we've actually had the honor of working with his school, New Bridges Elementary, since he founded the school eight years ago. Jessica Javitsky, also in Brooklyn, and Dr. Melinda Johnson in Maryland. So before we dive into this discussion, could you each share uh, very briefly who you are, either some inspiring moment or person that brought you into education to begin with, and the school that you are leading? So Kevin, um, would you be able to kick us off since you're, (laughs) unfortunately for you, right next to me? Sure, the hot seat. (laughs) Exactly, the hot seat. Um, Yes, so my name is Kevin Bowles. I am the principal of New Bridges Elementary in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and I have been the principal there for the last eight years since I was lucky enough to be chosen to start a school um, to replace a school that was being closed down. And I think a pivotal moment for me in my development as an educator was that I was a teacher at a school in Far Rockaway in Queens during the time that Hurricane Sandy happened. Um, And I really, through that experience of actually having to relocate our students to a different school building. And because I lived in the community, being the one who was responsible for supervising children, getting on the buses every morning from their homes, with, which were without power and without running water during that time. And I was able to really see and be a part of the way that a community could support kids and their families in a moment of crisis. Um, and that was really what solidified for me this calling to start my own school that could be that place for another community. And uh, now, yet again, we're called back into really a moment where school is the hub for so many people. And so I feel very proud and very fortunate to, to do my best to be able to provide that sense of comfort and safety to kids and teachers and families at a time where so much is unsure and unsafe. Mm, thank you, Kevin. Dr. Johnson, would you share with us next? Sure. 
Melinda Johnson. I am the principal of J.P. Ryan Elementary School in Waldorf, Maryland, Charles County. And this is my second year uh, in Maryland as a principal. Prior to, prior to that, I served as a principal uh, in Plainfield in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, taught there for a number of years. Um, my career originated in Baltimore City as a teacher. And my passion is a funny story. Um, I, I, growing up, I would always say that I'm going to be a professional dancer because I took dance class and that I would shop at Bloomingdale's and that I would teach um, also. And so I pursued that dream um, by uh, my, had a high school job at Chuck E. Cheese. And I was like, wait a second, I really do enjoy uh, working with children, the sounds they make, the noises. The, I enjoyed the moment that I walked in the door. You know, Chuck E. Cheese is a very loud place. Um, <laughs> hosting the birthday party, I enjoyed everything about that. And so it further was solidified when I took a, a general ed course my freshman year in um, elementary ed, adolescent studies, and I had a field experience. And I just really enjoyed seeing the light bulb go off. And my first year I taught in Baltimore City, I had about 32 students in my class. First year teacher, I thought I was going to change the world. And I really did try to change the world. I had several experiences, but from, you know, I didn't give up. You know, first year, you either make your, you either make it or you're going to break it. So I made it past that December survival stage and I came back and I just continue and I just really, really enjoy children. And, and that is what I'm very passionate about each and every day. And so now that we are in COVID, I can't see and touch and feel children. And so it's very difficult not to be able to have that physical um, connection with your scholars. Face-to-face -face connection is everything. So mm -hmm. I'm very happy uh, to be on this podcast this, this evening. Thank you. Jessica? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Jessica. I'm the principal of PS128 in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Um, this is my eighth year as principal of PS128. Um, you know, thinking about that question, I, I can't really pin down a moment, but I think one of the things that has been inspirational to me as an educator is that I, I've worked in several different schools within New York City. I worked in the Bronx, I've worked in Manhattan, I've worked in a couple schools in Brooklyn. And seeing the diversity and the difference in the communities um, and recognizing that that serving those communities looks really, really different, even within the New York City public school system. Um, it keeps me engaged and inspired every day um, because as the situation changes, like we've seen this year, and as the communities change, as people move in and people move out, the needs of the community change. Um, so I think that's one thing that keeps me inspired is figuring out exactly what my community needs right now and trying to bring that to them. So before we dig deeper into this discussion, it wouldn't be the Saracast or anything Move This World if we didn't take an opportunity to center ourselves and ground ourselves before we go deeper. So let's take a moment and if you're comfortable close your eyes. If you're not comfortable closing your eyes, you can just go ahead and stare at the ground beneath you. And let's think of one feeling that we want to let go of right now. One feeling, one person, one idea, one project, one distraction that is not serving us in this moment, that is not allowing us to have a productive present discussion. And what that release from our heads and hearts and bodies might sound like. And when I say go, you can keep your eyes closed so you don't feel awkward or uncomfortable. We are all going to, all four of us, are going to make the sound of the feeling that we are releasing that is no longer serving us. Okay? When I say go. One, two, three, go. Uh. <sighs> <laughs> nice. Now let's think of one feeling that we want to take with us at the end of this discussion, at the end of this roundtable conversation, and what that feeling that we take with us might sound like. 
And when I say go, let's all make the sound, all four of us, of the feeling that we are going to carry with us into this discussion and beyond. One, two, three, go. Amazing. Thank you. You can open your eyes. I really appreciate you just diving in there. So let's go back to that week in March when school started closing, either in Brooklyn or Maryland. I'm sure that, or wherever you are, let's just take ourselves back to that moment where we were, what we were feeling, what we were thinking. What was that time like? What was going on for you? And um, what were you dealing with as a leader of a community? And anyone who's um, inspired can jump in. I, I think for me, there was a little bit of, of disbelief happening at that time because, you know, it, it, every year we think we're closing for a snow day. We think we're closing for a snow day and we don't. So when there was all this talk about the school system closing down, I thought this can't possibly happen. And I personally had just been on an amazing vacation to Key West a couple weeks before. And, you know, I was feeling that kind of like uh, midwinter, like, revival or rejuvenation and spring was coming and you know I just couldn't believe that we were about to go into this really dark time um and you know people kept saying to me uh this is what we're going to do if we close you know my son has a piano class and she said you know if the school's closed I'm going to go to zoom and I, I said to her they're, they're not going to close the schools that, that can't possibly happen um and, and you know, my boss was saying to me, "Prepare for closing." And I, I think I was just holding on to this this disbelief that it was really going to happen um, for a lot longer, probably than I should have been. That's the overwhelming memory I have. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree. I, I would say separation anxiety, like knowing that you were going to get ready to separate and not be able to make sure you would greet your got my students every day, um, thinking that oh. Well, we're going to close, but we're going to be back. This is just going to be short. This is just temporary, and we're waiting for this to be over, but we're going to be back. So they kept telling us that we're back in the building, we're back. So it was just separation anxiety. You know, we made the decision to close, and on that last day, I think our, our attendance was very low. And I'm like, I didn't get a chance to do this. I didn't get a chance to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's grief. It's when you lose someone. Did you get a chance to say the last things you needed to say? Did you collect that last bit of information? Did you give them what they needed to be successful? So it was just separation anxiety and then fear of, of not being able to give them everything they needed to be successful before we left the building. And we had a number of field trips planned right into DC. And I had to make the decision to cancel a very large trip. And they were very upset. And I said, I and I, I, no one told me to make that decision. But I just had a, a gut feeling that I cannot send a five busloads of students and parents into Washington, DC, where I see the numbers rising. We didn't have a sure decision yet for our county, but I knew I just couldn't do that. And I had disappointment from teachers, from students, from parents, because they were it, numbers of chaperones that we had planned. So it was just a lot of things. But I knew that next day that I had made the best decision. But I, I definitely will say the separation anxiety. And I would agree with, with Jessica, just disbelief, just not knowing that we can't close. Like, we, we got to come back soon. You know, this is this is a nightmare that's going to be over very soon. So still feeling that way. By, by the way, <laughs> still feeling that way. I am definitely having a reaction to both of your shares, just the words grief and disbelief. And I, I just remember now looking at it, having heard you reflect on that, that I just didn't allow myself to feel any of those things in the moment, which maybe isn't the healthiest approach, but we just went to action. Like, what can we do right now? Um, and in a way that sounds like it was a little different than what happened in Maryland. We were given these three days with staff um, in the building. Jessica, I'm sure you remember kind of like the speed and urgency of those days just trying to figure out like you were saying melinda everything that we could possibly do to set kids and teachers up for success once they left the building because we didn't know what the future uh could hold and so that kind of like safe place of action and decisions and preparation but there is underneath all of that really an enormous amount of grief and currently in this moment, disbelief that we're still having this conversation so many months later without having been able to have our school communities back together um, in the way fully that they are, that they are meant to be. 
It's interesting that you talk about just going right into action and not providing space for processing. And I think that's so common for leaders that leaders, there's a saying that um, early when I was building Move This World, someone said to me that I hold on to daily. That's just like, it's really lonely at the top. You know, there's not, who are, who do you call on for support when you feel scared or isolated or confused? And I'm wondering when you think about processing and moving through the the grief and the loss that has been school closures and the pandemic, I'm curious, who are you all going to for support as leaders? Who's helping you either create space for you to actually process those feelings or to ask questions and and think about where do we go from here? What has that looked like for you as leaders? Well, well, we have a um, a weekly principals collaborative meeting with all the principals in our county. And sometimes the meeting is we don't have the answers. Mm-hmm. And it's okay being in the state of I don't know. You know, as leaders, we're used to being the ones that have to have the answers, where to go to mm-hmm. people, you know. And so I tell my staff all the time, if you ask me a question, I'm going to tell you what I know. And if I don't know, we to get, we're, together we're going to develop a source of where we can get the answer or we're going to come up with a solution together. So it's that vulnerability and being transparent with your fellow leaders, but also with your staff, you know, letting them know you know, I'm going through this right with you. And some of the same feelings and fears and unknown that you ha- you're having right now, I am also having. Um, but I also keep myself grounded in realizing that there are young people who have been on this earth far less years than we have that need us. And so although I am experiencing this, I kind of put it on the back burner. Mm-hmm. But I also know that that's what that's my passion. That's what pulls me through, knowing that that little person on the other side of the Zoom call or when I log into the classes, it looks like the students are climbing into the Zoom <laughs> camera because they want to get that connection. You know, it's it's just being OK with with collaborating with other leaders saying it's OK that we don't know, but we're all we have right now and we're going to get through this. And, you know, and we come up with different sayings and different mantras, but I have a fabulous team of vice principals that I rely on. Um, my principal secretary, everyone in the building, I'm completely vulnerable with them. And they're like, how are you coping? I'm like, well, today I'm not. And I'm going to be very honest. And I'll say COVID is not going to take me out. It is not going to take me out. And we have to be very real in that space and how we're feeling. I just have to name it and call it at that moment, you know, and if someone else is bringing anxiety to me, I'll say, let's breathe. I I feel the energy that you're bringing. You know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to calm you right now, but what together, what can we do together right now in this moment to help you feel better? What can I say to you? Because I don't have the answer that you want. The answer is that you want, you want, I don't have that. I can't give that to you. So it's just, it's just being okay with not being okay and not knowing and realizing that I tell that my teachers, I'm a first year principal right now. This is my first year being Mm -hmm. a principal in COVID. I'm a first year principal of a virtual school and you're a first year teacher. So although I have years of experience right now, we're all building this while we're trying to make it fly and take off. So it's, mm-hmm. it's being okay with not knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, definitely I, the, the leadership team of the school is a source of that kind of comfort that's built in from people sharing the responsibility for something. And I think we have to remind ourselves, my assistant principals and myself to like acknowledge each other as people sometimes, because otherwise mm-hmm. we would just keep going, 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 but we are all experiencing this also. Mm-hmm. I would also just say, you know, I feel very lucky I had this experience that from the first day New York City public schools were officially remote, I was able to continue working in person um, as a volunteer leader of an in-person child care center for the children of New York City's essential workers. And so the group of people, the teachers, teaching assistants, subs, and the other leaders, the cafeteria workers, school safety, everyone who was in that space... Um, I feel like it's such clear, direct, powerful evidence of the way crisis bonds people and brings people together. And the emotional support, even though we didn't often have time to talk about it during the experience because we were busy going, 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 that that group continues to provide to each other to this day, even though we don't all work in the same space anymore, is really powerful and resonant. Just the shared experience of of going through a crisis with people provides you so much care and support. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
As you think about that transition from, okay, we're open, this is our life and way of working and teaching and learning as we know it, and boom, this is that change. What was that transition like for your communities? Jessica, you mentioned that your community is largely new immigrants and many of your students return to their home countries. So what has the, what was that like? Um, that part of it has kind of been slow. And mostly what we saw is when we were coming back this year, um, I have a great percentage of kids who are learning completely remotely, um, many of whom are in other places. Um, you know, we, we've also, I think this is, this is probably true of everywhere, but New York City, especially, we've also lost a lot of kids who've moved to other places, um, you know, other states, other cities. Um, so our community was really in transition um, throughout this, this whole process. So I, I think one of the things that we've tried to focus on is maintaining our community and our values and our routines to the greatest extent we can because everyone is having such different experiences at home. Um, so I, I think I, I echo that kind of sense of loss or grief because this was the way that we did things, the community was there um, and you know it kind of started to, to crumble and scatter a little bit. So a lot of emphasis has been put on the things that we can control and the things that we can continue in, in our routines um, to try to keep us together and feeling positive and, and still feeling together. And what does that look like in practice when you have students, you mentioned some are, you know, back in their home countries and not even in New York State yeah. or in the U.S.? What does that look like? One of the things that I have emphasized from the beginning of this is that some of our, our big routines um, of the day have, have continued. So one of the things that we do in my school is our first uh, period of every day on all, on all grades is a leadership and movement period. Um, where we use the modules from Move This World. Um, we're also a leader in me school. So we do um, direct teaching around the seven habits. And, um, you know, that time has always really been sacred to us. And we've maintained that virtually as well. Um, so everybody kind of gets up and starts the day together in a similar way. Um, we've maintained some of our other routines. We, we share a book of the month around a particular theme every year. Um, and generally what happens is I read to the kids in the auditorium, we talk about it a little bit, and then the teachers reread during leadership movement time, the kids do art projects um, to reflect on the books, etc. Um, and we've maintained that as well. I do a virtual reading, um, and teachers share it with kids, and then they, they do the similar activities. So some of those big things that the kids rely on, um, we have, have kept as part of our routine, part of our daily routine, part of our monthly routine. Um, so that it still feels like PS128 and it still feels like our community, even though we aren't all physically together every day. That's a great point. I'm curious how you all are continuing to cultivate and inspire community, whether you are in person, hybrid, remote. What does that through line look like, especially when in New York City, we have gone from in person to hybrid to remote to now we're going back to in person. So it is um, a lot of transitioning back and forth. How do you build in the that continuity regardless of the place that you're in? Uh, I was going to say that is a really good question. Uh, and I think what Jessica said is key. It's the keeping the normalcy. Mm -hmm. Whatever you did in the brick and mortar, you can certainly do virtually. And, and how do you do that? Even if you have the hybrid model, how do you how do you keep it normal? You know, every other arena has kept it normal. The doctor's office, teletherapy. I cannot tell you how much I enjoy a teletherapy appointment. I feel <laughs> more valued in a teletherapy appointment than an in-person appointment. So, you know, that adjustment for me was just like that. So knowing that our children are resilient, our families are resilient. We're in the age where where digital is 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 the way, except for when you have that divide. You know, so we had to ensure all of our families had devices and hotspots. And so at one point we were text messaging our morning announcements to our families and keeping a music moment going. The same things we did in school, we were doing it virtually. And it is very important, like what Jessica said, if she read the story in school, well, why can't I do it online? And so keeping that going has been very big. Uh, we have a learning support center in our school where our, some of our teachers can bring their scholars. And I walked in just to say hi, but it's so weird because I'm in person, but they're in class 
virtually, so I don't want to interrupt their lessons because all of them are in different schedules. And so they want to run and hug and they want to run and touch. You know, we do air hugs. Um, but one of the students said to me, I really enjoy the announcements, you know, so knowing that they still value our mantra, our mantra is when they go low, we fly high. They, we say that every day, you know, we're cardinals and we fly high. So they really value that. But I think what's happening now is we have a stronger community because that parent that's sitting at home hearing that virtual lesson and hearing that mantra and hearing move this world, they have buy-in collectively and they can tackle, you know, challenges that they're experiencing by utilizing the tools that we've presented to the scholars. So now the parents see, you know, when our students have their therapy sessions or speech therapy sessions with the psychologist, with the speech pathologist, the parents are now a part of that. So the community, I, I believe this side of virtual learning is strengthening us as a community. Although we're not together physically, we are together virtually. And we say that we can do virtually anything together. And so we have our literacy nights, our PTO meetings, our parent chats. Uh, we have, uh, we had a night, we did a s'mores session and we sent home s'mores and families could build s'mores, make their s'mores together. So, That's so we're fun. still <laughs> doing, yeah, we're still doing the same things, but making sure all of our families have access. So, you know, some of my vice principals, my pupil personnel worker is, delivers computers to homes where there, are, you know, isn't transportation mobile. So whatever it takes is exhausting, but whatever it takes, we want to make, make everyone feel connected. I think that having school community that's really centered on tradition and ritual and routine, which is what makes a great school anytime, in my opinion, and it sounds like in both of your experience and opinions too, lent itself to making this transition more as seamless as it could possibly be in these, you know, just extreme circumstances. Because what we had to learn and figure out at the beginning was like Google Classroom, Google Meet, Zoom, these different tools. But what we always said was it's still going to be new bridges. Mm -hmm. And we need to provide that continuity to each other as the adults in this situation and then make sure that we're providing it to students. And so similar things with starting the morning with certain songs and affirmations, the the rituals of our community, we they are non-negotiables in the now Zoom classroom. Mm -hmm. So you've you've mentioned ways of engaging parents. I've heard about trying to ensure there's access. The s'more night sounds so fun. Mm -hmm. How are you bringing families into the classroom? How are you engaging families? Because we're all experiencing, especially those of us as parents, the new role of what it means to be learning at home. What does that look like in terms of practices, programs that you and your team have been implementing? I think that there just immediately was a barrier removed, whether people all wanted it removed or not, once <laughs> the classroom was in the living room. Mm -hmm. And so parents, there were so many parents who reached out to us, especially in the first few months, like, I didn't know how hard teachers had to work. <laughs> and they just had so much more access and connection to what their children were learning and working on that, like, forget about having a literacy workshop for parents. Like, this was so authentic. You're actually sitting in mm -hmm. the same room as your child is trying to figure out what's going on with their character you right. know, in the book they're reading. So that depth of connection to the teaching was just, that's been a total game changer. Mm -hmm. But then I would I say we've also had to be really respectful of the enormous stress that this pandemic has put on families and parents who are trying to provide for their children, um, oftentimes trying to take care of other family members within the home. There are homes full of life as people are working remote or people are out of work and kids are learning remotely. And so while we're trying to engage them, we're also trying to do it in a way that really does not put pressure on them. Mm -hmm. Like, let us do as much of the lifting as we can. You know, just make sure your child has a space that they're set up on, on Zoom at 9 a.m. And we're going to take it from there and let you, you know, take care of yourself also. So, but that's also so hard, especially at the elementary age and yeah. early elementary mm -hmm. age. It's a when, partnership. Yeah. Right. When, yeah. yes, the teacher can do as much as possible, but the teacher still, to your point, Melinda, you're saying, you know, I want to jump into the Zoom and hug the child and, and connect to the mm -hmm. child. It's like mm -hmm. there's only so much connection that can happen. And there is a responsibility that falls on the family member that's physically present. Right. And I think that that was 
you know, for us evidenced by how many parents did choose to have their children come back to school in person when that became available. And over two thirds of our students are back on a full-time basis. And that has to do, I think, both with parents' trust in us in this stressful time, which was built over, you know, years of relationship building, including the time that we were fully remote, but also speaks to the challenge of the circumstance for families and parents. So let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, Melinda, your community is entirely remote, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kevin, your school is, you said, two-thirds full-time. And Jessica, you're hybrid? I'm hybrid, yeah. About um a little a little more than a fourth of my kids come in um to the building sometimes. Great. So kind of across the spectrum mm-hmm. of engagement, which makes managing teaching and learning and running a school. I can imagine just next to impossible, given that it's not like, okay, I'm running a remote school or I'm running a hybrid school. It's like, well, today this is what's happening and next week this is what's happening and all of the constant changes. Mm-hmm. How are you managing the inevitable disappointment that is being lived from parents and families who, for whom like, it's not ideal. Disappointment from teachers, for whom this is not ideal. Disappointment for yourself. Like, what are the ways that you're managing disappointment during what has been a really just disappointing nine months? So I I can share. I think one of the biggest disappointments for me is as a school that serves many new immigrant families, um, I, I see it as part of our responsibility to help the kids and the families to acclimate to New York City, to acclimate to the United States, um, to use the city. So I have a tremendous number of trips and activities and activities that I bring in. I bring in somebody to bake bread with the kids. They hatch eggs um, into chicks. They do all of these kind of different activities. Um, And I think on top of giving them an experience of the city, it also, because kids are coming from all different language backgrounds, it gives them some common kid-centered stuff to talk about and to gain vocabulary around. And it's been a great disappointment to me to not have that, Um, to lose a lot of my residencies that I have. I have kids build things with the Center for Architecture and with LEAP and with Uh, all kinds of different organizations. And I've had to let a lot of that go, um, both because it it can be done virtually, but also for budgetary reasons this year. Um, So that has really been a great disappointment to me. And, you know, earlier this week, I had my staff on a meeting. And one of the things that I had us reflect upon was beside this disappointment, what are some of the things that we can see that we've learned and that kids have learned through this experience that we might not otherwise know. Um, so, you know, we talked about that a little bit, how, how some things are mitigated a little bit, um, how we, we said that our kids have been learning to um, help siblings in ways that they hadn't before. Some of my older students are helping their little siblings on online. Um, and, you know, they're helping to care for baby siblings while they're home and they're organizing their days differently. Um, and the teachers have been really, impressed with how the kids are managing and maturing in a, in a time sensitive way um, through all this. And I also think that my teachers have grown in, in being able to liaise with parents and families in a different way and to understand what it looks like inside these kids' houses in a way that they didn't maybe know before. And to have some of the culture of new immigrant families brought to life a little bit more for the teachers. Um, I think there's, although we're separated, there's there's somewhat more of a connection when you have the intimacy of being in someone's home and seeing what kinds of interruptions the kids have and who their family members are and the babies that come up to say hello on the screen and, um, you know, all of those things. I think we've tried to mitigate with some of that. And, and I would agree. I, I think naming the disappointment and just being very transparent about what it is but then also naming all of the advantages that virtual learning has brought to us. You know, I tell my t- staff, I say, listen, you have a, an, 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 another area of that skill that you can add to your resume that you would not have done otherwise. You know, you're now using digital tools that 
you would have probably never even thought about using or saying, mm, I'm scared of that. So we've been able to push past some fears. You know, we have teachers who are utilizing tools and have become very proficient in, in, in modeling strategies for other teachers. And so our students are now, when I watch the little kindergartners mute and watch the pre-K scholars, and then they, you know, open up this tool and the four-year-olds. And so it, it is really a beautiful thing to see something that and in the beginning, I had a lot of fear, you know, about, oh, my goodness, how am I going to manage and what is this going to look like? But to actually see it happen before my eyes, I, you know, I have to tell my staff all the time, I say, listen, you, I have to applaud you all. You are teaching and the energy that you bring each and every day is phenomenal. So let, let's talk about those successes, because, yes, this year has been disappointing. It's been tragic. But there has been innovation. There have been beautiful moments of inspiration and leadership and teaching and learning happening. What are some of the successes that you've seen in 2020 that you're most proud of? Um, I definitely think that maintaining and even building and strengthening community in a time that you would think would have isolated everybody feels like a success. And while my preference is to do that in person, and I'm so grateful that so many of our kids and staff are able to be back, I do see that mm -hmm. with educators who believe that it can be done in the remote setting, then it can be done in the remote setting. And human emotions can be talked about and dealt with and acknowledged and supported and love can be shared in a Zoom classroom. And if we do that and if we prioritize that, community can be maintained and built and strengthened. And I've seen that happen and that feels like a success in a time where, yes, there are just so many challenges. I definitely agree with, with Kevin. And I think it's the shift in the mindset too. Families are now learning how to use the technology. We hope we're holding parent tech talk, tech talk sessions, so parents are learning Nearpod, Digital Dropbox, and Clever and Imagine Learning. They're learning all of the tools which otherwise maybe not would have not catapulted the way that it is. Uh, we are passing out materials, so teachers are getting creative with sending home materials to make crafts. So our kindergarten classes, right before we went out on Thanksgiving, they all made. We, they made pie. And so you can see them in the Zoom holding up their pieces of pie. But it's, you know, we cut out all the construction pieces and sent them home. And so they followed and did a craft at home. So whereas before, you know, maybe mom was at work and she didn't get a chance to do that craft with her child. But now they're working together, putting things together, you know, we're building things together. And so I think it's the togetherness. I think that we are stronger. I think that we've become closer as being transparent with how we're feeling, um, you know, with cases popping up in the county, cases popping up, you know, it's, it's having fear together, but knowing we can get through this together. If everyone is on the same page, it, it is it is a great accomplishment. And any school leader, any teacher should be very happy that they have the ability now to connect with their students in a way that they did not before. And you have to challenge yourself. We talked about knowing your roster. You can see them every day walking to class. You can see when someone's having a bad day. You can look at, you can look and, and just watch and observe. But here you have to see them in the box. So your senses are a little more keen now to what's happening with your scholars. You're a little more in touch with their social emotional learning, the effective domain. You know, you have to be. So, you know, when I log in and teacher sees, you know, you know, a student go back and flip and come back to the, they call them and they're, you know, I was on one day and I called a student, his parents own a nail salon. So he ran off and did something and I called his name. He came back. Oh, I'm here. I just had to go do something. So they're responding, you know, mm -hmm. so the responsiveness, I think, is the responsiveness is, is a success, you know, and then parents are now looking for information for us and responding and being involved. And, you know, we are also forced with our ESOL population to make sure we are making our documents and everything we send out accessible to every family. So that's pushing us. That's pushing us to make sure that we, we think about every student that we're reaching and we're connecting to every family. So connectivity is a huge success as well. I've um I've definitely been worried about instruction in this blended and remote environment. Um, but I have to say I was extremely impressed. I went to a fifth grade publishing party 
uh, virtually last week. And I was really amazed with the kids writing as well as the structure. I want to do our publishing parties virtually all the time because <laughs> I think anybody who, you know, works in elementary school knows that when you have publishing parties, one kid is reading and other kids are going, oh, there's a bee, you know, is it going to rain? I'm touching my foot. So when everybody's in the Zoom gallery, um, you know, there's just this real attention on the speaker and really highlighting of the work um, that doesn't necessarily get to happen. And a, a great number of adults in the school community were also able to attend the reading. Um, so all of the fifth grade team um, who teach the various subjects and all of the kids were together and I was there and my assistant principal was there. And it was just a, a really, really nice event. Um, and I was very impressed with the kids work. Um, so that that gave me a, a bright spot around around instruction, because I see that it is it is happening and kids mm -hmm. are growing. Um, and and the, the platform for sharing was just just great. So as we look to the second half of the school year, which is right around the corner and the top of 2021, what worries you? What keeps you up at night? What concerns do you have either for your students, the families, your staff? Melinda? I would definitely say, um, you know, not every student comes from a home environment that is nurturing, um, attentive, and supportive. And so when, when they're in our presence for majority of the day, five days out of the week, we get an opportunity to be the, the first responder, you, you know, to observe, to support, to just notice when something isn't right and, and follow whatever protocols we have in place to, to provide that support. Now it's, it's, you see a box, you know, you, you have to use your spidey, your, your spidey senses, whatever, you know, to, to kind of see if something isn't quite right. But other than that, there isn't anything else much that um, I believe we can ensure and, and see that face the next day and know that, you know, is everything okay? So that piece worries me. Um, about the ones who are at home, uh, you know, school's a safe haven. School is bright, it's colorful, there's music, you get to go from, you get to walk down the hall, have lunch, go to recess, get a fist bump, you know, you get to do whatever, brain breaks, move this, you get mm -hmm. to do all of that. And we could do that virtually, but it's nothing like being in that environment that is your place. You know, when I, you know, I'm going back to Chuck E. Cheese where a kid can be a kid, but it's where a student can be, where a student could be a student. You know, you can come to school if you want to skip down the hallway, you can. If you want to be the funniest one at the cafeteria table, you can, you can. If you want to run at recess as fast as you can and jump off the slides, you can. So those are connections and those social emotional learning pieces and friendships, you know, is no longer there. And, and so that's where my heart you know, kind of at night is just like, wow. And I know some very, you know, different stories of the ones who would end up in my office every day for attention, you know, for a hug and for what are you doing? And, can, you know, and you just, that conversation piece, you know, going back and forth and having a conversation with a student and, and just learning, what did you do over the weekend? Um, you know, we have mentoring groups that we had in place. We had safety patrols, school ambassadors who gave tours in the building, you know, clubs. And so we're still trying to get those going, but you have teachers who are just burnt out. How can I lead a club if I did Zoom all day and I have a family at home? So it, that's what just, how do we make sure that, that they're truly okay and that we are doing everything possible to ensure that they're safe and they're cared for and they're nurtured outside of school hours? Yeah, I feel like you captured a lot of my feelings, Melinda. I think mm -hmm. when I feel worry, it is about kids slipping through the cracks. And it mostly has to do with students who are fully remote. Mm -hmm. And there's the idea of their safety and them not having a different place outside of the home. I think there's also just the isolation that this has created for a lot of not just children, but also adults who are totally confined to their, you know, their own home, their own space. And then while I am proud of a lot of the instructional things we've been able to do remotely, there is no way to me that 
there is the same academic impact of a year spent fully remote as a mm -hmm. year spent in the classroom with the teacher. So I'm worried about students who will slip through the cracks in terms of their safety, in terms of their emotional well-being and the isolation and the impact of that isolation, and then in terms of their academic progress. But I try not to focus on the worries and more about what can we do about those things. So even in this conversation, I'm going to bring myself back there <laughs> because it's just we got to stay focused on what can we do because this is the circumstance yeah. that we're running schools in this year. Well, and that's right. a great... Kevin, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Melinda. I was going to say, when Kevin said isolation, he also brought another worry that I have. You know, I have some staff members who have family elsewhere, and so mm -hmm. they're here. Mm -hmm. And you know, that interaction, they used to come and talk with colleagues in the teacher's lounge and enjoy one another. And, ha you know, we, we talk to children all day, so we need that adult social aspect, and sure. some just don't have it. So I worry about that. I, I worry about their home and how they're feeling in their own isolated space. And that's something that we talk about self-care. We talk about disconnecting, but there are some staff when they disconnect, there's no one at home to connect to. So I do worry and think about that also. Well, in the spirit of um, managing the worry and managing um, the fear, what gives you a sense of hope or optimism as you look to 2021 and the second half of this school year? Jessica? Um, well, I can share. So I have been operating on a three cohort model. So my kids have been coming into the building two days or one day a week. Um, and given the numbers of kids that I have, I will be reopening on Monday with a two cohort model. So I am looking forward to having kids who want to be in the building who are able to come in a little more. Um, and, you know, there's now a push in New York City to have kids come in five days a week. I do have my children with special needs coming in five days a week already, um, but I'm hoping to expand that to some of my lower grades. I think I might be able to get K and maybe one in five days a week. Um, you know, when, when we talk about worry, there is nothing like a school full of brand new to the country, English language learning five-year-olds um, and writing virtually. So, you know, that's one of my big worries. So I'm looking forward to having little kids talking with each other all day long and sitting at centers and using a pencil to write on paper and having a teacher there to look at it. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to increasing the amount of time that kids can be in. And, you know, if we have to close again, we'll close again, but you know, we'll get through this. And at some point we will be back in the building. Um, and things, things are looking bright, I think, um, on the horizon, although we may be entering a darker time right now, you know, I, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and I'm looking forward to that. Jessica, as you're talking about having your K and first graders back in the building here in the studio, Kevin's like um, doing a little move this world applause. <laughs> He's so excited. Kevin, tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing to advocate for how schools can open safely, how students and staff can be um, together learning, working together safely in the pandemic. So I definitely have been outspoken about this since a time where it was not a popular idea within New York City <laughs> to have teachers and kids come back. And a lot of that was informed by the fact that when all schools closed down, I never was at home without kids. I immediately was in a New York City public school building in my neighborhood where the children of New York City's essential workers continued to come to school. They were in small socially distanced cohorts. They wore masks all day. They stayed in the same classroom with the same group of kids and the same adults for a full 12 hour day that we were all there together. And in those, in those little socially distanced cohorts, we were able to create community and joy and support each other in this extremely stressful moment for our city, for our country, for our world. And we, never had a positive COVID case within that school community. So I just knew that we had done it there and I believed that we could do it once I heard about the possibility of reopening in September. So I just always approached it that way. How can we get kids in following all these safety protocols, but then be able to provide them everything we know is great about in-person instruction. I totally respect people's fears and concerns about it, but from that personal firsthand experience, I did have comfort with it. So I definitely was not afraid to raise my voice around that because I know so many people without having had that perspective from being in person with kids during the pandemic 
lived more in a space of everything that could go wrong. And of course, there are so many things that, you know, that potentially could. But I do believe that the benefits for kids, for teachers, for the community, um, for those who choose it, Mm -hmm. mean that in-person learning has to be available to to children. Well, and I so appreciated when you started, I guess, even early on in the pandemic, sharing your perspective and your experience, because if we haven't seen it, we can't even begin to imagine that it's possible. Right. And when so much of what we're consuming is fear-based, because this is our, for our generation's first lived pandemic, and we don't have science available to us, we, it's easy to kind of operate from a place of fear. So you sharing your experience, opening a school safely for those who choose to attend was so inspiring for me to know that it's possible. And as a mother of a three-year-old for whom her school pre-pandemic was not able to reopen and then trying to find a new learning community for her, watching her and her peers all be so good about wearing their masks. And just, I mean, she never complains to me about wearing her mask. She never asks for a mask break. She puts it on everywhere we go. She just knows this is part of what it means to be in the world right now. And I admire those leaders who have that um, bravery and uh, conviction in doing this safely because I do think for many communities, this is a really important safe space that we can provide. Thank you for saying that. And I would just quickly add that it was really the resilience of the children, like you said, that showed me that it was possible because those kids were there for 12 hours every day, like Mm -hmm. you said, wearing masks, meeting new kids because they were from all different schools. And it was their resilience, you know, that lit the way for for the rest of us doing this for the rest of New York City's kids who have returned to buildings this Mm -hmm. fall. My sister is actually, I mentioned this early on in the um, Sarah cast, she's an administrator and of an early childhood um, independent school in Virginia. And her school has been open the entire school year. And she always says, kids, to your point, are resilient. They wear their masks. They follow the protocol. They do what is expected. Um, It's just us as adults (laughs) who are making all the decisions that have to take all of this information in this new uncharted territory and try to do what's best for kids and teachers and families. Um, so I know, they, go ahead, Jessica. Sorry, the, the kids adapt in ways that we just don't. Time is different for them. They haven't been alive that long. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the way that they just go into whatever this new thing is, is is just amazing. Um, I, I have a six-year-old of my own and he told me the other day that one of the things he likes about the pandemic is wearing a mask. And <laughs> I asked him why, he said, because I'm used to it. So it's just become something that he <laughs> somehow thinks he likes because it's something he's been doing every day. So, mm-hmm. you know, we need to put our own adult adult resistance to change aside and just think about you know, what they're seeing as as being great. And, you know, I shared this with this community, uh, with the Move This World community at the beginning of the year, but I was amazed with how well my kindergartners did coming in for the very first time to school. Um, Kindergarten actually went way better this year in tiny pods than it does. You know, I didn't have criers. I didn't have any runners. I didn't have anybody hanging on to their mom and telling me they weren't coming. Um, You know, it was calmer and quieter and, they wear their masks and they sit in their seats and, and they're, they adapted really, really well. So, you know, it's kids, kids can do this, even if we think we can't. Dr. Uh, Kathy Hirsch-Pasek, who was on an earlier episode of the Sarah cast, one of my favorite things that she said to me when I became a first time mother was Sarah, you can't mess this up. Kids are built to last. And I, I, I go back to that daily. It's just this idea that kids are built to last and, We have to relieve some of the pressure that we put on ourselves for every decision to be perfect and just always try to do what's best for them. So um, I feel like I could talk to the three of you forever and people are making kind of like side eyes at me like this conversation is going on and going on and there's so much that we all have to learn from you. So I think there's even follow-up discussions to be had around the ways that Um, your schools will look in 2021 having more students back 
in the building, moving to a two cohort model, or in your case, Melinda, continuing to be remote, what are what's the impact? What is this looking like now that we have a little bit more time and a little bit more data? What are we seeing? And as we begin to plan for the 2021-22 school year, still with so much unknown and uncertainty, what have we learned that we can take with us? So as we close out this conversation, I'd like to um, end with a practice of gratitude. And so as we breathe and kind of soak in that gratitude, I'd like to invite each of you to share either a word or phrase or a sentence of gratitude that you are feeling right now in this moment. And we can do this um, uh, first with Jessica and then we'll move to Melinda and then Kevin. As a school leader, I'm, I'm definitely grateful that um, everyone is really bringing their best. Everyone understands that everyone else is struggling and, and most people really are doing everything they can to do the best job they can and to make everyone else's lives as easy as they can. So let's take one deep breath for that gratitude. Breath in and out. Melinda. Um, gratitude was our core value for November. Um, and so I, I want to say that I am very grateful to have the opportunity to serve in a profession where I know that there are tons of school leaders around the world who are doing better than I am, who I can look up to and learn from and grow from. And I appreciate this experience with Jessica and Kevin hearing how they are, I'm not one, more than one sentence, but I'm sorry. They're, 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 they're in person and we can do it. I have to go back to my staff and staff meeting tomorrow. I'm like, we can do it. So definitely just, just mm -hmm. hearing your passion, Kevin, for the in-person and, and Jessica hearing about your kindergarten. So I think I was on that call. I went back and told, I said, we can do this. So definitely I'm grateful for, for learning from and, and, and vibing from, my daughter says vibing all the time, from your energy and your spirit. Thank you, Melinda. So let's take a deep breath in for that. And exhale. I am definitely grateful for living and working in a place of possibility. I'm grateful for the power of community and communities. And I'm grateful for the resilience of children. Mm. Let's take a deep breath in for that. And out. Kevin, Jessica, and Melinda, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your perspectives in this last episode of the first season of the Sarah Cast. We're so grateful for your time and um, sharing all that you've seen in your communities over the last nine months of this pandemic. We hope that the rest of your school year, you and your families and your communities stay safe and healthy and joyful whenever possible. Thank you for joining us for season one of the Sarah cast conversations in social emotional learning. As I look back on all of the conversations we've had in this first season from the creative arts to the importance of play to SEL policy and assessments, I'm reminded that this work is more critical than ever before from trying to survive and move through a global pandemic to navigating a contentious election cycle to experiencing racial unrest and bracing for environmental disasters, 2020 is a lot to process. But our strength lies within our greatest challenges. Each time we face something difficult, it's an opportunity to learn, to reflect, to grow stronger. How do we react? Who do we turn to? What decisions do we make? The conversations I've had this season with scientists like Dr. Kathy Hirsch-Pasek and Dina Nunziato, to researchers like Dr. Nick Yoder and Dr. Clark McGowan, to educators like Matthew Portell and the team at Durham Public Schools, these conversations remind me that the work is never over. We don't arrive one day at social-emotional wellness. We constantly grow and practice. Not only that, but we're never alone. When we connect with others, 
we deepen our understanding of ourselves. I'd love to hear what you learned from season one of the SarahCast. You can let us know on Instagram at move underscore this world. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the SarahCast as well. We'll be back for season two in the new year. So make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss our brand new season. The SarahCast Conversations in Social Emotional Learning is produced by the Move This World Audio Network. Jessica Altunian is our producer. Aaron Altunian is our editor. Rachel Altunian composed our theme music. And I'm your host, Sarah Lahane. Move This World supports social emotional learning for students, their families, and their school communities through evidence-based curricula rooted in creative expression and movement. You can find additional resources to support SEL in your district, school, classroom, or home on our website, movethisworld.com. Together, we can create a world where everyone belongs. I'll see you next time.